Incredible Adventures by Algernon Blackwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Patrick Seventy Nine. Story One: The Regeneration of Lord Ernie, Part Two. The lumbering yellow diligence brought them up from the lake shore, a long two hours, deposited them at the opening of the village street, and went its grinding, toiling way towards the frontier. They arrived in a blur of rain. It was evening. Lowering clouds drew night before her time upon the world, obscuring the distant summits of the Oberland. But lights twinkled here and there in the nearer landscape, mapping the gloom with signals. The village was very still. Above and below it, however, two big winds were at work, with curious results. For a lower wind from the east, in gusty draughts, drove the body of the lake into quick white horses which shone like wings against the deep Bassus Alps while a westerly current swept the heights immediately above the village. There was an odd division of two weathers, presaging a change. A narrow line of clear bright sky showed up the Jura outline finely towards the north, stars peeping sharply through the pale moist spaces. Hurrying vapours, driven by the upper westerly wind, concealed them thinly. They flashed and vanished. The entire ridge, five thousand feet in the air, had the appearance of moving through the sky. Between these opposing winds, at different levels, the village itself lay motionless, while the world slid past, as it were, in two directions. The earth seems to be turning round, remarked Lord Ernie. He had been reading a novel all day in train and steamer, and smoking endless cigarettes in the diligence, his companion and himself its only occupants. He seemed suddenly to have waked up. "'What is it?' he asked with interest. Hendricks explained the queer effect of the two contrary winds. Columns of peat smoke rose in thin straight lines from the blur of houses, untouched by the careering currents above and below. The winds whirled round them. Lord Ernie listened attentively to the explanation. Oh, I feel like I was spinning with it, like a top, he observed, putting his hands to his head for a moment. And... What are those lights up there? He pointed to the distant ridge where fires were blazing as though stars had fallen and set fire to the trees. Several were visible at regular intervals. The sharp summits of the limestone mountains cut hard into the clear spaces of northern sky thousands of feet above. Oh, the, the peasants burning wood and stuff, I suppose the tutor told him. The youth turned an instant, standing still to examine them with a shading hand. 
people live up there? he asked. There was surprise in his voice, and his body stiffened oddly as he spoke. Oh, in mountain chalets, yes, replied the other, a trifle impatiently, noticing his attitude. Oh, come along now, he added. Let's get to our rooms in the carpenter's house before the rain comes down. You can see the windows twinkling over there, and he pointed to the building near the church. The storm will catch us. They moved quickly down the deserted street together in the deepening gloom, passing little gardens, doors of open barns, straggling manure heaps, and courtyards of cobbled stones where the occasional figure of a man was seen. But Lord Ernie lingered behind, half loitering. Once or twice, to the other's increasing annoyance, he paused, standing still to watch the heights through the openings between the tumble-down old houses. Half a dozen big drops of rain splashed heavily on the road. "'Oh, hurry up!' cried Hendricks, looking back. "'Oh, we shall be caught! It's the mountain wind, the Coupe de Joran! You can hear it coming!' for the lad was peering across a low wall in an attitude of fixed attention. He made a gesture with one hand as though he signalled towards the ridges where the fires blazed. Hendricks called pretty sharply to him then. It was possible, of course, that he misinterpreted the movement. It may merely have been that he passed his fingers through his hair, across his eyes, or used the palm to focus sight for his hat was off and the light was quite uncertain. Only Hendricks did not like the lingering or the gesture. He put authority into his tone at once. Now come along, will you? Come along, Bindi, he called. The answer filled him with amazement. All right, all right, I'll follow in a moment. I like this. The tutor went back a few steps towards him. The tone startled him. "'Like what?' he asked, and Lord Ernie turned towards him with another face. There was fighting in it. There was resolution. "'This, of course,' the boy answered steadily, but with excitement shut down behind as he waved one arm towards the mountains. "'I've dreamed of this sort of thing.' I've known it somewhere. We've seen nothing like it on our, our stupid trip. The flash in his brown eyes passed then, as he added more quietly, but with firmness. Don't wait for me. I'll follow. Hendrik stood still in his tracks. There was a decision in the voice and manner that arrested him. The confidence, the positive statement, the eager desire... The hint of energy. All this was new. He had never encouraged the boy's habit of vivid dreaming, deeming the narration unwise. It flashed across him suddenly now that the deficiency might be only on the surface. Energy and life hid, perhaps subconsciously, in him. Did the dreams betray an activity he knew not how to carry through and correlate with his everyday external world? And were these dreams evidence of deep hidden desire?
a clue, possibly, to the energy he sought and needed, the exact kind of energy that might set the inert machinery in motion and drive it. He hesitated an instant, waiting in the road. He was on the verge of understanding something that had yet evaded him. Bindy's childish, instinctive love of fire, his passion for air, for rushing wind, for oceans of limitless... There came at that moment a deep roaring in the mountains. Far away, but rapidly approaching, the ominous booming of it filled the air. The westerly wind descended by the deep gorges, shaking the forest, shouting as it came. Clouds of white dust spiralled into the sky off the upper roads, spread into sheets like snow, and swept downwards with incredible velocity. The air turned suddenly cooler. More big drops of rain splashed and thudded on the roofs and road. There was a feeling of something violent and instantaneous about to happen, a sense almost of attack. The Joran tore headlong down into the valley. "'Come on, man!' he cried at the top of his voice. "'That's the Joran! I know it of old! It's terrific! Run!' and he caught the lad, still lingering, by the arm. But Lord Ernie shook himself free, with an excitement almost violent. "'I've been up there with those great fires,' he shouted. "'I know the whole blessed thing. But where was it? Where?' His face was white, eyes shining, manner strangely agitated. Big naked fellows who danced like wind and rushing women of fire, and two things happened then, interrupting the boy's wild language. The Joran reached the village and struck it. The houses shook, the trees bent double, and the cloud of limestone dust, painting the darkness white, swept on between Hendricks and the boy with extraordinary voice, even separating them. There was a clatter of falling tiles, of banging doors and windows, and then a burst of icy rain that fell like iron shot on everything, raising actual spray. The air was an instant thick. Everything drove past, roared, trembled. And, secondly, just in that brief instant when man and boy were separated, there shot between them, with shadowy swiftness, the figure of a man, hatless, with flying hair, who vanished with running strides into the darkness of the village street beyond. All so rapidly that sight could focus on manner neither of his coming nor of his going. Hendricks caught a glimpse of a swarthy, elemental type of face, the swing of great shoulders, the leap of big, loose limbs, something rushing and elastic in the whole appearance, but nothing he could claim for definite detail. The figure swept through the dust and wind like an animal and was gone. It was indeed only the contrast of Lord Ernie's whitened skin, of his graceful, half-elegant outline, that enabled him to recall the details that he did. 
the weather-beaten visage seemed to storm away. Bindy's delicate aristocratic face shone so pale and eager, but that a real man had passed was indubitable, for the boy made a flurried movement as though to follow. Hendricks caught his arm with a determined grip and pulled him back. Who was that? Who was it? Lord Ernie cried breathlessly, resisting with all his strength, but vainly. Oh, some mountain fellow, of course, nothing to do with us, and he dragged the boy back after him down the road. For a second both seemed to have lost their heads. Hendrick certainly felt a gust of something strike him into momentary consternation that was half alarm. "'From up there, where the fires are?' asked the boy, shouting above the wind and rain. "'Yes, yes, I suppose so. Come along. We shall be soused.' "'Are you mad?' for Bindy still held back with all his weight, trying to turn round and see. Hendricks used more force. There was almost a scuffle in the road. "'All right, I'm coming. I only wanted a second look. You needn't drag my arm out.' He ceased resistance, and they lurched forward together. "'But what a chap he was! He went like the wind!' Did you see the light streaming out of him, like fire? Like what? shouted Hendricks, as they dashed now through the driving tempest. Fire! bawled the boy. It lit me up as he passed. Fire that lights that does not burn, and wind that blows the world along. Oh, button your coat up and run! interrupted the other, hurrying his pace and pulling the lad forcibly after him. "'Don't twist! You're hurting! I can run as well as you!' came back with an energy Bindy had never shown before in his life. He was breathless, panting, charged with excitement still. "'It touched me as he passed!' fire that lights but doesn't burn and wind that blows the heart to flame let me go will you let go my hand he dashed free and away the torrential rain came down now in sheets from a windless sky for the joran was already miles beyond them tearing across the angry lake they reached the carpenter's house where the lodgings was soaked to the skin they dried themselves, and ate the light supper of soup and omelette prepared for them, ate it in their dressing-gowns. Lord Ernie went to bed with a hot water-bottle of rough stone. He declared with decision that he felt no chill. His excitement had somewhat passed. "'But I say, Mr. Hendricks,' he remarked, as he settled down with his novel and a cigarette, "'calmed.' and normal again. This is a place and a half, isn't it? Oh, it stirs me all up. I suppose it's the storm. What do you think? The electrical state of the air, yes, replied the tutor briefly. Soon afterwards he closed the shutters on the weather side, 
said good-night, and went into his own room to unpack. The singular phrase Bindy had used kept singing through his head. Fire that lights but doesn't burn, and wind that blows the heart to flame. The first time he had said, blows the world along. Where on earth had the boy got hold of such queer words? He still saw the figure of that wild mountain fellow who had passed between them, with the dust and the wind and the rain. There was confusion in the picture, or rather in his memory of it, perhaps. But it seemed to him, looking back now, that the man in passing had paused a second, the briefest second merely, and had spoken, or at any rate had stared closely a moment into Bindy's face, and that some communication had been between them in that moment of elemental violence. End of Part 2